Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, you're going to be having a chat about the RMS Titanic, the legendarily famous ocean liner, the biggest ship on the sea in its time, supposedly unsinkable. And I say supposedly because, as you are almost certainly aware, it did sink on its maiden voyage, no less. Just two weeks after being officially completed, the Titanic struck an iceberg and sank to the bottom of the Atlantic. The Titanic was built as a as a testament to human achievement, a ship so large, so grand, so opulent, meant to showcase our progress and advancement as a species. And instead, it became a tragic reminder of the cost of hubris. This is a story that has become enormously famous. At the time, the magnitude of the tragedy with so many deaths caused a frenzy of interest. But then, Across the 110 years since the Titanic sunk, it has remained a story with which everyone is familiar, aided no doubt to its portrayal in popular media, in addition to the fact that it is fundamentally a very sensational story of a very avoidable tragedy. It is one that lives large in popular culture through to the modern era, and today, We're going to talk all about it. We're going to talk all about the ship, how and why it was built, what people thought of it at the time, what happened on its maiden voyage, the iceberg, the collision, the sinking, the survivors, the rescue, and of course, the lasting impact and legacy of the Titanic through to the modern day. Quick thank you goes to alert listener Isaac James, who suggested the Titanic is a topic for the show. Good on you, Isaac. Cracker of a tale, even if it is, you know, a very tragic one. But uh, yes, very long episode coming your way today. Let's not waste any more time here in the intro. It's time to get underway with the story of the sinking of the RMS Titanic. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1907, to Britain, to the headquarters of a shipping company called the White Star Line. Now, the White Star Line was originally founded in 1845. Its focus was transatlantic travel for both people and cargo. However, unlike its rivals... The White Star Line didn't focus on speed when it came to its passenger services. Instead, it focused on luxury. Even if you get there slower, the White Star Line contended, even if you get there a bit slower, you will get there in the utmost comfort. That's what they told their passengers. Don't you worry about that. Anyway, in the first decade of the 20th century, the White Star Line is facing fierce competition when it comes to transatlantic travel from its chief rivals, namely Cunard, Hamburg America, Neudeutsche Lloyd. Uh, And the White Star Line's chairman, a bloke whose name was J. Bruce Ismay, he wanted to come up with new edges on these other shipping companies. And he was a big believer in offering luxury and opulence and quality of service rather than raw speed. So Ismay wanted an upgrade of all of the services that the White Star Line was currently running across the Atlantic. And so in 1907, as I say, he started hunting about for ideas as to what the White Star Line's next move should be. He knows that he can't beat lines like Cunard for speed, and so instead he goes in a different direction, again, in line with the the vibe that the White Star Line was famous for. He decides to commission a new class of ocean liners, and these ocean liners were to be the epitome of luxury and refinement. To replace all the ones that the White Star Line was currently using, some of which had been in service for almost two decades, they're a bit tired out by this stage. And this new class of vessel would be known as the Olympic class. And in 1908, Ismay worked with a shipbuilding company called Harland & Wolfe, based in Belfast in, in Northern Ireland. And in designing the new Olympic class ships, Ismay basically gave Harland and Wolf a blank check. He didn't care what they cost. He just wanted them to be the absolute final say in maritime splendor and magnificence. In July 1908, Harland and Wolf come back with the designs that they've put together after having received this brief from Ismay. And I tell you what, Ismay bloody loves them. These ships are going to be something else. They are Absolutely enormous, almost 270 metres in length, 30 metres wide, the 
biggest ocean liners on the sea at the time. And the facilities for the first class passengers were incredible. Lounges, restaurants, smoking rooms, pools and baths, a library, gyms and sporting facilities, promenades, great big sumptuous cabins, and of course, the legendarily famous Grand Staircase that you might have already seen. You might have seen pictures of this before. The Grand Staircase would span seven of the nine decks that were proposed to be on these ships. For its upper-class passengers, these ships were designed to feel like lavish, high-end hotels. Again, no expense spared. But additionally, there were facilities and cabins for second and third-class passengers, not anywhere near as opulent as first-class, of course. Third-class passengers were tucked away with the crew quarters, really. But still, it has to be said, Even the third-class passengers got a much better deal on these ships than they would have on most other ocean liners. Usually, third-class passengers were crammed into huge, crowded dormitories with hundreds of other people. But on the White Star Line's new class of ships, you only shared a room with a maximum of nine other people, sometimes less, and you had a dedicated dining and recreation area as well. None of these areas were as magnificent and stately as the first-class areas, of course, but still, you weren't exactly slumming it like you would be on other ships if you travelled third-class. Anyway, all up, the Olympic-class ships could take almost 2,500 passengers across the Atlantic with a crew of just under 900, so it's a little under 3,500 people all told. And again, they're not quick, but that isn't the point. They, uh, They are faster than the older ships that the White Star Line was using in any case, so it's an upgrade... In every sense, even if they can't keep up with the Cunard ships. Anyway, Ismay gives Harland and Wolfe the green light, and so construction begins. That same year, 1908, they started building the first Olympic-class ship called the Olympic uh, in December 1908. And then work began on the second ship concurrently in March 1909. And it was this second ship of the Olympic-class that would go on to become the Titanic, one of the most famous ships in human history. These ships were the largest ships ever built at the time. No one had even attempted to build ships of this size before. Harland and Wolf had to pull out all the stops for their construction. Uh, Before they could start building the ships, they had to build new facilities in which to build the ships. They were that big. Uh, The Olympic and the Titan were built more or less at the same time together over, over a period of more than two years. The Olympic was finished first because work began on it first, but broadly speaking, these two ships were constructed concurrently. Their hulls were made up of thousands and thousands of thick steel plates, nine metres long, almost two metres wide, between two and four centimetres thick, each weighing thousands of kilograms. The ships had nine decks, as I mentioned before, and 16 compartments with 11 watertight doors that could seal these compartments off if there was an emergency. These watertight doors uh, could all be operated remotely as well, which was a pretty advanced safety feature at the time. They could just press a button on the bridge and uh, and the ships, uh, the, the, these compartments would seal up automatically. And these compartments were uh, part of the reason that the Titanic was considered unsinkable. Any compartments that were damaged and took on water could be closed off before they would cause the ship to sink. The ships each had three main coal-powered engines, two piston engines and a turbine engine, which offered a a decent balance of speed and efficiency. And these three engines consumed almost 550 tonnes of coal every day. They had to be fed round the clock. When the ships were sailing, it meant that there were blokes down there by the engines 24-7 just shoveling coal into them. Uh, Anyway, externally, the ship's features were colossal. So bloody big. You wouldn't believe it. Their their anchors were five and a half metres tall, weighed nearly 15 tonnes. It took 20 Clydesdale horses to haul them into position as the ships were being built. But the anchors were tiny compared to the rudders on these things. Almost 25 metres tall, five metres wide, weighing around 100 tonnes. The rudders were so big that they needed their own specific engines just to move them. And then finally, when talking about the ship's exterior, we can't fail to mention the funnels. The funnels were also absolutely massive, 25 metres in length. But here's the best part about them. You might, you might not have known this, right? Only three of the funnels on these ships 
were actually functional. Only three of them worked. The fourth one apparently was just put on purely for aesthetic reasons. Apparently three funnels just didn't look very good. So they bunged on a fourth just to even things up. It wasn't connected to the engines or anything. Apparently the, the fourth funnel was there just to, just to make the ship look a little bit better. But before we talk about the interior of the ship, let's talk about one, uh, one final external feature of the Titanic that you're probably quite interested in, the lifeboats. In the plans submitted to the White Star Line, right, the Olympic-class ships had the capacity to carry 64 wooden lifeboats, sufficient to carry 4,000 people, more than enough, even if the ship were full. However, the law at the time said that you only needed to carry 16 lifeboats. And so the White Star Line decided to carry 20, four more than was legally required, you know, just in case. This meant that the Titanic, with almost three and a half thousand people aboard at full capacity, had enough lifeboats for just 1,178 people, a third of its total passengers and crew at full capacity. Not ideal. But then again, it's not like they're going to need them, right? I mean, this sounds ridiculous to us today, but remember back then the Titanic was considered unsinkable. They didn't think they'd need a single lifeboat, let alone 16 or 20. And if they did need lifeboats, if, for example, the, the Titanic's engines stopped working and they needed to call for help from another ocean liner who would come by and, and, and take passengers off, these passengers would be ferried by the lifeboats, which would then go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It wasn't like they would need a lifeboat for every single person on board, right? The lifeboats were seen as ferries in case the ship needed to be evacuated and the passengers were needed to be transferred to another ship. They didn't really ever consider that the Titanic might sink and that the lifeboats would be the only thing between the passengers and the crew and, and death in the icy, frigid waters of the Atlantic Ocean. But you can tell, right? You can tell that safety standards back then aren't what they are today. We'll talk more about this in, in greater detail later on. And and And... While we talk about safety standards, this was evident while the ships were being built long before they got in the water. Almost 250 worksite injuries took place while building the Olympic and the Titanic. 28 of them were severe, legs being crushed, arms being ripped off, you know, that sort of thing. And additionally, eight people died during the construction and fit out of these ships. But as you are, of course, aware, that's only a tiny fraction of what the total death toll of the Titanic would end up being. Anyway, on the 31st of May 1911, the Titanic was ready to be launched. In order to get it into the water, over 20 tonnes of soap were used to lube up the slipway into the River Lagan. The, uh, the Olympic had already been launched in October the previous year, so they weren't expecting too many issues in getting the Titanic into the water. Over 100,000 people gathered in Belfast to watch the launch. We, which uh, went off with, without a hitch. The, the Titanic was towed out of the river and it was made ready for fit out. It took almost an entire year to fit the Titanic out with everything. The engines, the funnels, the interior were all installed. And then finally, it was finished and ready to set sail on the 2nd of April, 1912. And little did anyone know that within two weeks, this brand new marvel of the era would be at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Some last-minute changes have been made to the Titanic's design by Ismay based on feedback from the near-identical Olympic, which had already been at sea since June 9, 1911. And this, mean, uh, this meant that the Titanic was larger and heavier than the Olympic, thanks to these changes. And so once it was ready to go, it officially became the largest ship ever to put to sea. The Titanic sailed to Southampton in the, in the south of England uh, from where it would set off on its maiden voyage on the 10th of April across the Atlantic to New York. 885 crew came aboard, many for the first time just a few hours before the ship set sail. Most of them were casual workers who had picked up a job only very shortly before the voyage itself. And 
This lack of preparedness, this lack of familiarity with the ship, the lack of safety onboarding for most of the crew would prove to have disastrous consequences in the fullness of time, as we'll come to. And on top of this, most of the crew weren't sailors either. Less than 100 of them were actually sailors. More than half the crew were working in service or hospitality aboard the ship, and the remainder were working on the engines. But the man in charge of them all was Captain Edward John Smith, a veteran captain for the White Star Line, their most senior officer. He'd been at sea for 40 years, 27 of those as a captain, and he'd been in command of the Olympic since it was launched. He was transferred to the Titanic for its maiden voyage, ready to take this mighty ship across the Atlantic for the very first time. And only time, as it would turn out. But again, we'll get there. Now, You might think that given all the excitement surrounding the world's largest ship being sent off on its maiden voyage, that people would have been jumping out of their skins to secure a ticket and get on board. And ordinarily, you'd be right in assuming that. Ordinarily, a huge ship like like the Titanic, a marvel of the age, it would have been booked out from stem to stern. But not this time around. And I'll tell you why. In the time leading up to the departure of the Titanic, a national coal strike had been underway across the UK, which had caused huge disruptions to British shipping. Voyages were being cancelled left, right and centre. And as a result, most people hoping to travel had postponed or even just cancelled their plans, deciding to come back when the strike ended and, and pick up from there. Fair enough. Sort of like what we had with COVID recently, a very silly thing to book travel when there's a high chance that it's, you know, your voyage is going to be cancelled in the first place. And that's what, that's what was happening because of the strike. And the strike only ended a few days before the Titanic was due to set sail. This was not enough time to make much of a difference to the passenger numbers, which were a lot lower than they would have been otherwise. Of a potential 2,453 passengers, only 1,317 tickets were sold, 324 first class, 284 second class, and 709 third class. So the ship is a long way from being full, luckily, you might say. And on top of that, a good number of people who bought tickets didn't actually board. Some arrived too late and missed the departure, some changed their mind, some cancelled, and some we just don't know. We don't know why they didn't show up. It wouldn't be the sort of decision you'd make lightly. Tickets weren't cheap. The cheapest tickets would cost around £800 in today's money, while the cheapest first-class tickets were £2,400. The ship had a real cross-section of early 20th century society, members of the ultra-rich right down to skint immigrants seeking a new life in the US. Um, And in time, while we're talking about ticket prices, the plans were to ramp up the cost of tickets to as much as £92,000 in today's money during the high season. That's the sort of cash the White Star Line anticipated making off the Titanic in the fullness of time, but of course, this never came to pass. Anyway, on the morning of the 10th of April 1912, passengers started to arrive and board. The third class passengers first, then the second, and then finally, the first class passengers, all of whom were personally greeted on their way in by the captain. And then, with everyone settled, the Titanic set off on its maiden voyage from Southampton at 12 o'clock sharp, exactly as scheduled. And the very first thing it did was almost crash in to another ship. Because of the size of the Titanic, the wave that it created as it sailed through the harbour actually caused one of the mooring cables of one of the other ships in port, the New York, to snap as it went up and over this wave and into a trough. The New York, untethered, began to float quite quickly towards the Titanic, causing Captain Smith to order the engines of the Titanic to be put full astern to try to avoid a collision. And at the same time, fortunately, a tugboat was able to pull the New York away from the Titanic. And the two ships missed each other by just over a metre. Not a great start to the voyage, I think you'll agree. But from there, it was relatively smooth sailing for the rest of the day. The Titanic stopped in Cherbourg in France and picked up more passengers as well as dropping some off who had only come along for the trip across the English Channel before nipping over to Queenstown in Ireland, today known as Cove, uh, arriving at 11.30am on the 12th. 
And there, more passengers came aboard, more passengers got off, including, interestingly, a bloke who happened to have brought a camera with him for this short part of the voyage. And it's thanks to him that we have pictures of the Titanic en route on its maiden voyage that actually survived. Anyway, that was that. The Titanic weighed anchor for the very last time at 1.30pm in Queenstown or Cove and set off for the transatlantic leg of the voyage towards New York. However, unbeknownst to everyone on board, within three days, the ship would, as I say, be at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Travelling at roughly 900 to 1,000 kilometres a day, the Titanic made its way across the northern Atlantic, heading towards Newfoundland in Canada. This was the standard route taken by all ocean liners at the time. They would travel from offshore Ireland to offshore Newfoundland and then change course to land in New York. And this part of the journey was thoroughly unremarkable. They had to sail through large waves for a while, and it was very, very cold outside. But for the most part, nothing much happened. People up in first class presumably enjoyed travelling in in such style and comfort, eating fancy food in fancy restaurants and doing whatever it is that rich people do. Uh, But even down in third class, people having a great time. By many accounts, the conditions in third class were actually better than the day-to-day living conditions that many of the passengers had had back at home. So they're enjoying themselves as well. The only cause for concern is amongst the crew. The Titanic did receive some warnings about icebergs drifting around in the waters near Newfoundland. But largely speaking, these warnings were ignored and the ship charged ahead at full steam. The ice was particularly bad this year. A mild winter had seen more icebergs than usual break away from Greenland and float south. But again, the crew of the Titanic, they're not worried. And you might think this is foolish, and perhaps it was, but mariners at the time generally didn't consider icebergs to be much of a threat to large ships like the Titanic. You would spot them at a distance, and then you would sail around them. And even if you crashed into them, it wasn't the end of the world. In fact, back in 1907, right, a German ocean liner, the Konprinz Wilhelm, had rammed headfirst into an iceberg, and it was, well, it wasn't fine. It needed some repairs, but it still made it safely to its destination. That same year, 1907, Captain Smith, the bloke in charge of the Titanic, he was quoted as saying that he... could not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. And how wrong he was. But this was the prevailing attitude. The Titanic was unsinkable, thanks to its thick hull, its remotely activated watertight compartments. And on top of that, it's outfitted with a state-of-the-art communication system. If anything goes wrong, they can wirelessly get in touch with any other nearby ships by sending out distress signals, and rescue won't be too far away. And besides, the White Star Line had a reputation for quality and reliability. These guys knew what they were doing. And they've been calling the Titanic unsinkable ever since it was conceived of as a ship. So we've got nothing to worry about here. Nothing at all. Calm down, mate. I know I'm kind of labouring this point a little bit. I know it's easy for us to look back knowing what we know now and make our armchair judgments. And I'm not trying to justify or defend the decisions made by the White Star Line and the crew aboard the Titanic as they navigated this disaster. But I'm just trying to explain to you The mindset of the people who conceived of, built, crewed, piloted, and sailed on the Titanic. Everyone really did think this ship was invincible, including, as we'll come to, the passengers. But it wasn't, as you well know. It is finally time now to talk about how and why this supposedly unsinkable ship actually did sink. Throughout the 14th of April, the Titanic had received several messages warning them about the amount of ice drifting through the sea ahead of them. Passengers had even noticed small icebergs floating about here and there as the Titanic steamed along. However, the crew did not reduce the speed of the ship, although when repeated warnings about the ice reached Ismay, the White Star Line chairman who was, of course, on board for this maiden voyage, he did order a change of course to the south to avoid the worst of the ice. However, here's where things started to go wrong for several reasons. First of all, the next few warnings that came in 
never made it to Captain Smith, possibly because the telegraph operators were fixing faulty equipment. Then, later on in the evening, a ship called the SS Californian sent several messages with increasingly serious warnings about the situation with the ice. There's tons of pack ice, huge icebergs floating about. It is not a good situation. But these messages aren't properly relayed either for the stupidest of reasons. Check this out, right? The telegraph operators on board the Titanic were subcontractors. They weren't crew. They weren't employees of the White Star Line. They worked instead for the Marconi's Wireless Telegraph Company. And as such, they prioritised the messages that passengers were paying them to send to shore and not, you know, the critical warning messages coming in about the sailing conditions ahead. One operator apparently radioed back to the Californian telling them to, quote, shut up because he was so busy working through a backlog of passenger messages that he needed to send. He wasn't interested in what the Californian had to say. So, yeah, they really aren't taking the iceberg situation seriously, to say the very least. They don't slow down. They're not worried about the ice. And again, it's easy for us more than a century later to say, well, these idiots had it coming. What were they thinking? I'll, I'll tell you what they were thinking. They were thinking that this was within the bounds of a normal response to this situation at the time. The ship had to make good time to New York. Icebergs weren't considered that much of a risk to the ship. These warnings that they were given were treated as little more than advisory. This was very normal at the time, which, of course, doesn't make it right. Anyway, that night, still on the 14th, ship's time, most of the passengers and the crew had gone to bed for the night, and uh, the ship, as a result, relatively quiet. There are still some passengers up late enjoying a drink in one of the saloons or hanging out in the smoking rooms. Or I will say all of them probably hang out inside because it is freezing, freezing cold outside. Also extremely dark. It was a clear night, but there was no moon. So it's very dark outside and the sea was completely calm. Apparently as smooth as glass. Now these days, we know that a completely still sea is a warning sign of pack ice. But back then, this wasn't understood as it is today. So another warning sign that escaped the notice of the crew of the Titanic. Anyway, despite the rather cavalier attitude that, uh, that the crew had towards the icebergs and the warnings they'd received, the lookouts had still all the same been instructed to keep a very close eye out for icebergs. Um, but... Even so, the Titanic was still going along at full steam, 22 knots, 41 kilometres an hour, just under its absolute maximum speed. After noticing a slight haze on the horizon at half past 11, nine minutes later, the lookouts raise the alarm. They call the bridge and they alert them, iceberg right ahead. And this iceberg that they had spotted was enormous, perhaps as much as 30 metres tall, taller than the top deck of the ship, and maybe more than 100 metres in length. And that's just what was visible. Usually only 10% of an iceberg's mass is above water, so this thing was truly gargantuan. Now, these sizes are all estimates, obviously. It's very difficult to measure icebergs at the best of times, and it's it's not as if, you know, back then anyone said, oh, just just hang on a second, everyone. Let me, let me get out the tape measure here. But all the same, after the lookouts had spotted the iceberg and alerted the bridge, First Officer William Murdoch, who was in, in command of the ship at the time, after hearing this warning from the lookouts, he ordered the ship harder starboard. That is, the rudder was to turn to starboard, to, so to the right for all of us land lovers, so the ship would turn to port, to the left. However, this steering manoeuvre took 30 seconds to be put into effect due to the limitations of the steam-powered turning mechanisms, and on top of that, the engines were put full astern, essentially put into reverse. Now, you might think, well, yes, of course, obviously that makes sense. Try to slow the ship down as much as possible, but putting the engines full astern actually hampered the ship in avoiding the iceberg. Because had the engines kept driving the ship forward rather than being put into reverse, the ship would have turned at a greater pace, at a sharper angle, and may have missed the iceberg altogether. But as it was, 
This manoeuvre meant that while the Titanic avoided a head-on collision with the iceberg, part of the iceberg that stuck out underwater scraped along the side of the ship for seven seconds. Above the water, hardly anyone noticed. The crew and the passengers towards the top of the ship felt a little bump, while those closer to the impact felt and heard a larger crash. And when Captain Smith felt the impact, he knew that something was up. He hurried to the bridge and organised a response, assessing the damage that had been done by the collision with this iceberg. And let's talk about the damage. The impact caused a series of gashes in the side of the ship, crumpling and buckling the steel plates that I mentioned earlier. And water, of course, started pouring in through the openings between the plates. Seven tons of water entered the ship every second, flooding in to six of the 16 watertight compartments. This water was coming in 15 times faster than it could be pumped out. And once the full extent of the damage was realised, it wasn't long before the ship's engineers informed the captain that the ship was doomed. Two compartments wouldn't have been an issue. Even three and perhaps four would have been manageable. But five or more was a catastrophe. And I'll tell you why. This is really interesting. I said before that the compartments were watertight. And they were kind of. They were watertight below the waterline, which you'd think would be enough, right? But they weren't watertight up at their tops. So if two compartments were breached, no worries. They would flood to the waterline. The watertight doors would be closed and that would be that. No more water would enter the ships. However, if you flood enough compartments, the ship would take on so much extra weight in water that there would be a new waterline, ultimately higher than the point at which the compartments were watertight. So to put it simply... Imagine you're filling up an ice cube tray, right? And when you fill up one of the little slots, the water spills over the top of the tray and into other little slots. Six breached compartments meant that water would spill over the top of them, over the top of the watertight areas into other compartments. And this, of course, spelt doom for the ship as ultimately the entire thing would fill with water. And so just after midnight, Captain Smith ordered for the lifeboats to be made ready, for the passengers to be mustered, and for the radio operators to send out distress signals. However, these distress calls, tragically, gave an incorrect position. They directed any rescuers to to a point around 25 kilometres away from where the Titanic actually was. And additionally, the passenger muster didn't go well at all, even as stewards went from room to room, from dormitory to dormitory, telling people to put on life belts and get up on deck. Some people just didn't. It was cold outside, man. It's nice and warm in here. They didn't seem like anything's wrong. The ship's listing a little bit to the side, but it's not like it's going to sink, right? What happened? What happened to unsinkable? Many passengers stayed below decks as the ship filled with water. Even those that came up weren't taking the situation very seriously. They're kicking around chunks of ice in a game of soccer. By half past midnight, the ship had taken on over 13,000 tonnes of water. And it was estimated by the engineers that the Titanic had around two hours left before it sank altogether. Passengers started to be loaded, loaded into lifeboats, but this too was an absolute disaster. Remember I said the crew hadn't had much in the way of safety onboarding or anything like that? The crew didn't know how to operate the lifeboats, hadn't been trained. Many of the boats weren't filled up to capacity before launch because some of the crew took the order of women and children first to actually mean no men. And so the first lifeboats were launched with empty seats because the crew turned away men who attempted to board them with their wives and children. And on top of all of this, some passengers just refused to board the lifeboats in the first place. They claimed that they'd be safer on the ship. Ismay himself was running about the deck, trying to persuade people to get onto the lifeboats. But when the first one was launched, as I say, only 28 people were on it, despite its capacity of 65. And then, of course, even if people had wanted to get on the lifeboats, they're just 
weren't enough of the bloody things for everyone to escape the ship, not to mention that not all of them were launched before the ship sank. The crew of the Titanic were completely unprepared for this situation, and so the loading of passengers into lifeboats was an absolute schmozzle. Meanwhile, the crew aboard the ship are doing everything they can to keep the ship as operational as possible, many losing their lives in doing so. They're fighting to keep the generators going so the lights stay on. They're fighting to vent steam from the boilers so they don't explode. And they're doing all of this and more while water is continuing to flood into the ship. Occasionally, great rushes of water would come along and sweep people away, often to their deaths. But many brave crew members stayed at their posts to the very end, quite literally keeping the lights on. And they paid a very dear price for this, as none of the 35 engineers and electricians aboard the ship survived the sinking. By the time we get to half past one, it is clear to everyone that this is, in fact, an absolute calamity. All the people who had thought they'd be safer on the ship are, by now, very, very aware that they are not. The ship is not just listing to the side, but now tilting down into the water as well. And the increased tilting of the ship, as well as the increased urgency of the crew in getting people on lifeboats, is finally starting to get through to the more obstinate passengers. But it's too late for most of them. Most of the lifeboats have already launched, empty seats and all, and it's far too late for all the third-class passengers stuck in the labyrinthine corridors in the lower decks. The US required the third-class passengers to be segregated from the first and second-class passengers as they were processed separately by immigration once they arrived in New York. One set of rules for the rich and another for the poor. Countless third-class passengers died because they couldn't escape from their areas of the ship, which were, of course, the furthest from the lifeboats. Panic began to set in above deck, especially amongst men who were being denied places on the remaining lifeboats so women and children could board. Some men rushed the sides of the ships and threw themselves over and into the lifeboats as they were being lowered. And there were even stories of one of the ship's officers shooting at men who did this with a pistol. The final lifeboat to be launched was set off just after two o'clock. And by now, the Titanic was tilted underwater to the point that the bow was completely submerged and water had reached the upper decks. Passengers moved to the stern, to the rear of the ship, to get away from the water. And then, between 10 and 20 past two, everything happened all at once. The ship started tilting much faster as previously unflooded compartments finally began to fill with water. The first funnel fell off, narrowly missing a lifeboat, but still crushing many people who were nearby in the water itself. The ship continued to tilt forward. People fell off or were swept off the deck into the water. And then the second funnel fell off, much like the first. And then, just before 20 passed, the ship's generators finally gave out And all the lights went off, plunging everyone into near total darkness. In the inky black night, with no moon, passengers fell from the stern of the ship as it raised into the air at a 45 degree angle, crashing to their deaths in the water below. And then, just before 20 minutes past two, the ship finally succumbed to the immense forces acting on it, the bow filled with water dragging down and the stern filled with air pulling up, with a terrible rending noise, the Titanic split in half. The bow sped towards the bottom of the Atlantic, while the stern, filled with water, tilted even higher into the air before it too rapidly sank underwater at 20 minutes past two. And five or six minutes later, both parts of the Titanic hit the sea floor after sinking down a distance of just under 3,800 metres, spilling debris that rained down on the sea floor for miles around. The bow hit the sea floor at a forward angle, buckling it and driving it 20 metres into the sediment, while the stern was shredded by the implosion of tanks and enclosures within it, and then pancaked 
once it finally hit the bottom, splaying out the hull. And the pieces are still there today, of course. But we'll come back to that in a little bit. Back on the surface, those who had managed to get away from the ship before it sank, but hadn't made it to lifeboats, they were in big trouble. The water temperature was minus two degrees Celsius, below freezing point, which I didn't know was possible. And this sort of temperature is very quickly lethal. It is cold enough to cause almost immediate cardiac arrest. And almost everyone who fell into the water died within minutes as a result. Only 13 people were saved by being pulled into lifeboats. And those in the lifeboats, they weren't in immediate danger of death, but there wasn't much more that they could do apart from sit around in the freezing cold air. Better than the freezing cold water, certainly. But all they could do was sit there and wait for rescue. Which, I'm happy to say, arrived as the Titanic's final distress calls had been heard and responded to. After receiving the Titanic's distress signals, a ship called the RMS Carpathia had rushed over at full speed, which, as we know by now, is a very risky thing to do in a field of icebergs. But luckily for the survivors of the White Star Line's RMS Titanic, the RMS Carpathia was a ship belonging to none other than the Cunard Line. Remember, the shipping company famous for its speed. Captain Arthur Henry Rostron of the Carpathia had received the distress call just after midnight and he had ordered his ship to turn around and make for the Titanic with all the speed the Cunard Line was so famous for. It took the Carpathia three and a half hours to get there. It arrived at four o'clock, despite the misleading directions of the distress call that had been sent out. And of course, to the great relief of everyone aboard the lifeboats. Almost all of the people who had made it to the lifeboats were rescued, although some had perished in the freezing conditions before the arrival of the Carpathia. But nonetheless... Captain Rostron's decision to respond to the, to the distress call so swiftly saved hundreds of lives that otherwise would have been lost to the freezing cold conditions there in the North Atlantic. And as the sun finally rose, the survivors who had been loaded onto the Carpathia were shocked at what they saw. The sea surrounding them was filled with ice, hundreds and hundreds of icebergs to the horizon, some of them 50 metres high, and all of them invisible in the dark night that had proceeded. Two more ships arrived after the sun had risen, the Mount Temple and a ship I mentioned before, the SS California. Mount Temple had attempted to make its way to the Titanic, but had been stopped by pack ice, and so had to wait until morning to navigate there successfully, while the Californian, which had been the closest of all the three ships to the Titanic, hadn't responded to the distress calls at all. Why? Because they had never received them. The operator aboard, the same operator who had been told by the radio crew of the Titanic to shut up when he had been sending warnings about the ice, he clocked off for the night at half past 11. And the Titanic hit the iceberg just 10 minutes later. And the first distress calls were sent just over 20 minutes after that. So the Californian, due to the lack of a 24-7 presence at the radio equipment, wasn't aware of the disaster until the next morning, at which point they sped over and joined the Mount Temple in an ultimately fruitless search for survivors amongst the floating debris where the Titanic had gone under. All they found were corpses. Everyone who hadn't made it to the lifeboat had died. And this included Captain Edward Smith, who, in keeping with a long-standing maritime tradition, had gone down with his ship. Even today, a ship's captain or master abandoning their vessel before every crew member and every passenger is safe can be prosecuted. As a criminal, as we saw when Captain Francesco Chettino of the Costa Concordia was imprisoned 
after abandoning his ship when it capsized back in 2012. Anyway, the Carpathia, with all these survivors, turned around and headed back to New York, where it had departed only days beforehand, arriving on the evening of the 18th of April. 40,000 people lined the docks in New York to see it arrive with the survivors, and I'm happy to say that the survivors were treated very charitably, being looked after with food and clothing by the people of New York. Many of them, the third-class passengers mostly, had lost everything they owned when the Titanic went under, and of course there were very few people who hadn't lost a loved one, a relative, or a friend on the ship. Women and children first meant that there were a lot of new widows who disembarked in New York. Of the estimated 2,224 people, passengers and crew, who were aboard the Titanic, only 710 survived, less than a third of those thought to be on board. And to really put things in perspective, it's interesting to look at the percentages of the passengers that were saved by class. Only 3% of the women in first class perished. 97% of them were saved. However, in third class, 54% of the women died in the disaster. As did 67% of the men in first class, a huge proportion, but nowhere near the 92% and 84% of the men in second and third class, respectively, who didn't make it. As is the case with almost everything, it was the poor who bore the brunt of the disaster. And it gets better too, because when ships were sent out to retrieve bodies from the water, the corpses of first-class passengers were prioritised, the justification being that these wealthy men would need to be identified to help resolve inheritance disputes. Many of the poor souls lost from second and third class were given unceremonious burials at sea. Anyway, in the weeks and the months and even the years after the Titanic disaster, there were investigations, government inquiries, lawsuits, insurance claims, and, and the continued retrieval and burial of the dead. It was a massive story that generated a colossal amount of interest all around the world, and its cultural impact is clear to see. As everyone has heard of the Titanic today, there have been so many books and songs and, of course, films made about the disaster. But these inquiries held in both the US and the UK took testimony from survivors and neither found the White Star Line to have been negligent. They did harshly criticise the speed at which the ship had been sailing, given the numerous warnings about the ice field that had come through. And Ismay, the White Star Line chairman, was grilled by investigators to within an inch of his life as he had been one of the survivors from the disaster, while so many others had perished on his ship. But the most important thing to come from these inquiries was actually a net positive for the world, because in the wake of the Titanic, maritime safety laws were tightened enormously, especially, you won't be surprised to learn, the regulations surrounding lifeboats. And as much as people hate red tape, Regulation saves lives. There is no doubt about it. The International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea developed a treaty to enact stricter maritime safety rules, although the First World War delayed the treaty coming into force. And additionally, the International Ice Patrol was established to monitor icebergs in the North Atlantic. And today, the International Ice Patrol is still there, patrolling the North Atlantic, and the International Convention for Safe for the Safety of Life at Sea is still enforced by its 167 signatory nations. And you might think, well, hang on, what? 167? Aren't there like 200 countries? Only 167? Well, yeah. I mean, it's not like a landlocked nation like Nepal needs to sign up, let alone a doubly landlocked nation like Uzbekistan. Although Austria, Mongolia, the Czech Republic, and some other landlocked nations still signed up, so I don't know. But as tragic as the Titanic disaster was, with the deaths of around 1,500 people, it did serve to make the sea a safer place, as nations around the world realised that they needed to take maritime safety much more seriously to avoid another disaster like this in the future. 
Ships now had to start carrying enough lifeboats for everyone aboard, no matter what. They had to have their radios actively monitored 24 hours a day, no matter what, to avoid another situation like with the Californian. And today, these and many other safety regulations mean that there have only been five or six maritime disasters on the scope of the Titanic since 1912, rather than tens or hundreds of them. Finally, let's talk about the wreck of the Titanic, its discovery and its ultimate fate. At the time, it was thought that the Titanic did not split completely into two pieces as it sank. It was thought that it was still there at the bottom of the Atlantic somewhere in one piece. But finding the wreck was an insurmountable task, to begin with at least. It lay almost four kilometres below the ocean's surface where water pressure is in excess of 45,000 kilopascals compared with the Earth's atmosphere, which is around 100 kilopascals. All the way back in 1912, people were coming up with these impossible plans to salvage the wreck, despite one, one not knowing where it was, and two, having no way to get there. Uh, one of the more harebrained schemes from back then uh, involved the retrieval of the bodies from the wreck, um, the, the bodies that had gone down with the ship. Uh, this was actually seriously proposed. Someone came up with the idea of dropping dynamite on the wreckage, again, assuming you could actually find it, in order to dislodge the bodies inside it, which would then float to the surface. Glad they didn't go through with that one. But then these proposals, schemes, plans and ideas became even more ridiculous. Over the, over the decades after the, after the disaster, a lot of people put forward ideas of a new sort in wanting to raise the Titanic from the briny deeps and bring it back above the surface. And to that end, different people at different times proposed things such as using enormous electromagnets on a submarine that could drag the wreck back up to the surface or inflating nylon balloons and attaching them to the wreck, uh, which would then lift the wreck up. This idea was quickly abandoned when they realised that they had no idea how to actually inflate the balloons once they got down there or how to get down there at all. Um, There was another idea to pump buoyant wax or Vaseline into the wreck, which would cause it to float up to the surface. Again, they don't even know where the wreck is, but they're already talking about filling it full of Vaseline. So I don't know what's going on there. Um, oh, hang on. What about this? What if we pumped liquid nitrogen down to the wreck and encased the entire thing in ice? Then it would float. Ice got it down there. Now we can use ice to get it back up. But perhaps the most ridiculous idea that I came across was a scheme that involved filling the interior of the Titanic with not not with wax or Vaseline or even ice, but with, if you'll believe it, millions of ping pong balls. And the only problem, well, not the only problem with that. There are many, many problems with that. But the main problem with that is that the ping pong balls would, of course, be crushed by the water pressure long, long before they reached the wreck. Which I'll remind you, still hasn't been found as these people are making these proposals. However, as undersea exploration and submarine technology improved, people continued to scour the bottom of the sea around where the Titanic had sunk, searching for the wreck with submarines, sonar, magnetometers, and who knows what else. But finally, in 1985, it was found by a pair of researchers named Jean-Louis Michel and Robert Ballard, who used a deep-sea vessel called Argo with a little robot attached to it that could go along the seafloor called Jason. And they found the wreck by following and mapping out the debris trail that had been left by the, by the Titanic as it sunk, which is five square kilometres in size, a much bigger thing to be able to find. And they ended up following this to the wreck itself, both pieces of it proving once and for all that the ship did indeed break up as it sank, contrary to what people thought at the time. As I mentioned before, the stern, buggered, absolutely buggered. It flattened itself as it smashed into the seafloor. The decks all collapsed on themselves and blasted the hull apart. But the bow is in reasonably good nick, even today, relatively speaking. Uh, much of the softer wood has decayed away, but the hardwood fittings remain, in addition to hard-wearing metals and porcelain. Uh, Areas such as the first-class reception room and dining room are still more or less intact. Glass is still in the windows. You can go online and see pictures taken by those who have been down there. 
Uh, and ever since the wreck was discovered, it has had people and machines dive down and visit it, in many cases hauling back up objects and artefacts from the wreckage, in one, in one case even a section of the hull. And this has caused a fair bit of controversy, some call it grave robbing, but again, you can go and see things taken from the Titanic, things like perfume bottles, unopened bottles of wine, steam whistles, shoes, even a pocket watch that stopped just after 20 minutes past two when the, when the ship went down. And of course, it's not just grave robbers that have gone down to visit the wreck. Scientists, researchers, filmmakers, even tourists have gone down to see the Titanic since, uh, since its rediscovery. However, this will not be possible forever. The wreck of the Titanic is teeming with deep sea life, much of it unknown to science before the wreckage was explored. And the most destructive of all the life forms down there are the metal-eating bacteria that are munching their way through the hull of the ship, even now as we speak. It's estimated that the bacteria in the Titanic consume 180 kilograms of metal every single day. They're what's responsible for the rusticles that hang off much of the ship. And so as time goes on, there is less and less of the Titanic left. And one day, it'll be gone entirely. The RMS Titanic and its sinking was an event that captured the attention of people all around the world back in its day. And its cultural legacy as one of the greatest maritime disasters in human history has been profound and long-lasting. The largest ship in the world, supposedly unsinkable, lost on its maiden voyage. This mighty symbol of unbridled human ambition turned into a tragic reminder of the folly of overconfidence. The Titanic was meant to showcase the grandeur made possible by human technological advancement in a brand new century. But instead, it showed us the costs you pay with a lack of due care and preparedness. Thankfully, however, the lessons we learned from the Titanic were taken to heart, and in the years that followed, ships were designed, were built, and were operated to be safer than ever before. But all the same, the story of the Titanic reminds us of one of the great irrepressible truths that for thousands of years some people have ignored at their own peril through to this very day. The ocean is a deadly and unforgiving place. And no matter what we tell ourselves, our mastery over it is still far from complete. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the RMS Titanic. It was good to get across it. A story, once again, we've, we've sort of been across a few of these things, something that we've all heard of, right, but maybe don't know all the ins and outs, although I'd say with this one probably more people know the ins and outs of it. Possibly more ins and outs than actually happened, thanks to uh, certain pieces of popular, popular media. Anyway, it's been great to have you along for this uh, thoroughly factual reaccounting of the story of the Titanic, and I do hope you, you've enjoyed it. Uh, as ever, I'm going to leave you with the boring housekeeping stuff here. If you want to get in touch with me and suggest a topic for the show, just like alert listener Isaac James, you can do so, of course, halfhousehistory.net, the contact, contact form, find it there. Um, and on the website, you will not find one of the latest and greatest features of Half House History, quarter history, which is available exclusively through your podcast feed. If it's not appearing on your podcast feed, please let me know and I'll try to fix that up for you. Uh, but otherwise, if you want to support the show, of course, there is the merch shop with merch available. If you've got an idea for some new merch that you'd like to see, some historically inspired merchandise that you think might be a good idea, uh, let me know because it really isn't a huge hassle to put new merch on the shop if it's easy enough to design and, and, and make up. So even if you kind of want just, you know, an almost custom printing of a T-shirt with something that you've got a good idea for uh, that's historically related. Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Um, and, of course, I want to thank all of the patrons, all the people on Patreon who are supporting me week in and week out. Thank you so much for continuing to make this show possible, for being a spur at my flank to get it out every week. It's great to have you along and I do hope you are uh, you feel, uh, you know, 
proportionately rewarded by the silly behind-the-scenes stuff, show notes, uncut episodes, early access, ad-free listening, of course, and exclusive patron-only merch. If you want to join the Patreon, I would greatly appreciate if you did. Patreon.com slash half history can sign up today uh, or tomorrow. If you're busy today, that's fine. Tomorrow's fine as well. Uh, but that's it. Going to close things out today, not with a question posted on Reddit, but actually by something sent in by an alert listener. We don't get many sign-offs sent in by listeners, but if you've got a little little gag or question or joke or, or whatever that you, you think might be of use in a uh, in a future episode, please let me know because it was great to hear from alert listener Jonathan Cool, who uh, sent in not a question, but a little fact, a little fact about the, um, the Titanic. And when you think about it, it is kind of self-evident, but uh, interesting to think about this all the same. Jonathan Cool wrote in to let me know that... Uh, Despite the enormous amount of damage done to the Titanic as it sank, and despite the intervening century since it crashed into the bottom of the ocean, did you know that the pool on the Titanic still contains water? <laughs> <laughs>